In the instructions this morning, I mentioned that the Buddha referred to four areas for bringing mindfulness to. And then in the instructions, I don't know if you noticed, but I actually only mentioned three. And so the, the first of those was mindfulness of the body, and second, mindfulness of the feeling, and third, mindfulness of the mind. And spoke about these three this morning and spoken about them on other days. And um, so this evening I thought I might um, mention the fourth one. Uh, just um, for those of you who were missing, I thought you were missing something. <coughs> so the fourth, the fourth area that the Buddha outlined for bringing mindfulness to is what he referred to as mindfulness of the Dhamma. And this word Dhamma, D-H-A-M-M-A, is um, a Pali word, the language that the Buddha spoke. And um, you might be a little bit more familiar with it in the Sanskrit form, which is Dharma. The mindfulness of the Dharma. And um, this word Dhamma has a number of different meanings. And so um, this bringing mindfulness to the Dhamma can be seen in different ways. But um, in the end, I think the different ways are very interconnected, as are all things. And, um, and it really comes down to just one, just one thing. Um, so this word Dhamma, the, probably the most common meaning for this word is the teaching. Mindfulness of the teachings. And this refers to the, the teachings of the Buddha, the, the Buddha's teachings, the Buddha's discourses, the Buddha's instructions, the Buddha's sharing of his experience and his understanding with the intention of pointing us in the direction of liberation. Another meaning for the word Dhamma is the nature of things. And so bringing mindfulness to the nature of things. And I've referred to the nature of things and spoken a little bit about some aspects of the nature of things. And I'll see, hopefully I'll have time this evening to get around to that a little bit more. The mindfulness of the nature of things. The third meaning, or a third meaning of Dhamma is simply things. Mindfulness of things. And so anything is a Dhamma. Anything is a Dharma. And bringing attention to things. And of course in being mindful of body, we're being mindful of a thing, and being mindful of feeling, being mindful of mind, being mindful of different objects, whatever the object may be, being mindful of self, being mindful of the Dhamma. And so the word Dhamma has these, these three meanings and we can kind of break it down and see it as giving attention to the teaching, giving attention to the nature of things, giving attention to things. But in, in all of these, and, um, and I think what, what links it is that it's giving attention, bringing mindfulness to whatever the object is, whether it's the teachings, the nature of things, 
or thing, bringing mindfulness to the object in a way that there can be an understanding, there can be an insight into the teachings, into the things, into the nature of things, in a way that it does liberate us. So the, the, the linking of these three is in the insight. And whichever meaning we're taking, and whatever object we're taking for the mindfulness, importantly, it's not so much the object that's important. It's the insight, the understanding. And the object is merely a form which, when given the mindfulness and when given the interest, this quality of investigation that I spoke of, the form has the potential to reveal to us liberating insight. And so, again, it's not so important. It doesn't matter so much what the object is. It's the insight that liberates, the understanding. I'd like to speak a little bit more about this and and speak a little bit about the teachings, the Dhamma as the teachings, and, and perhaps try and link these and relate them, and relate them to the practice as well. So for some of you this will be a review and probably maybe heard it dozens of times, hundreds of times. Hopefully it's not boring. Certainly for me it's never boring. No matter how many times I hear the teachings, never boring. So the the Buddha, um, as many of you know, and perhaps some of you don't really know much about the Buddha or the Buddha's actual teachings or the Buddha's life, The Buddha was born um, in the border area of India and Nepal, in in an area which is now actually in Nepal, just over the border from India. And he was born into, um, referred to as a royal family, but his family was was the ruler of a a rather small and not very significant kingdom. Um, But nevertheless, um, it was a, um, a relatively powerful family and had a, so we gather from the, from the history, from the text, had a, a considerable degree of wealth. And the Buddha grew up with this wealth. And it's said that he grew up with um, three palaces, one for each of the seasons, the winter season, the hot season, and the rainy season. And uh, he grew up surrounded by beautiful people. And it's from the text, we get the impression that it's a, a lot of women. Uh, beautiful, beautiful women and always young people. And he grew up surrounded by the arts and music and fine, fine, the finest clothing, the finest cloth, the finest materials. And um, so they had the, the finest food. All the, all the luxuries were provided for him. And, um, and the Buddha's father t- took great care, as, as many parents do, to protect the Buddha 
from any kind of harm or any kind of pain or any kind of unpleasantness. And he did this with the motivation of wanting to keep the Buddha in the palace. <laughs> he didn't want the Buddha to run off and try other things. He wanted to, to take over the kingdom, so he made it as pleasant as he possibly could to entice the Buddha to stay. And uh, I think, maybe not to the same extent, but I think maybe many parents do that <laughs> with their children. So the, um, the Buddha grew up with all this luxury and all this pleasure, and uh, he got married and had a child, and at that point he realized that he wasn't really happy. He realized that with everything, all the, all the measures that we generally use to, to, to measure, to indicate success, the Buddha had it all. And yet he realized that he wasn't happy. He realized unsatisfactoriness in his life. And he set off on a quest to see if he could come to some understanding about this unsatisfactoriness and to see if he could find a way of living in the world that was completely free from this dissatisfaction, this unsatisfactoriness kind of an inner restlessness, an inner angst, an inner discomfort with what is, with his situation. And so he went off and he joined in the, uh, the, the general form of spiritual quest at that time, um, to actually two different forms. He, he explored two different forms. So the first form was um, concentration. And very often in coming to retreats, coming to meditation, we come with the idea of getting concentration. And we have this idea that if we can get really concentrated, really focused, and strong concentration, then something magical will happen to us and we'll have these blissful experiences and life will be wonderful. And the Buddha studied with a couple of different teachers and he achieved all that they could teach him about concentration and achieved remarkable depths of concentration and experienced realms of bliss that are hard to even imagine. And, um, and the teacher said, that's it, you've got it. Come and teach with me. And, and, the, and the Buddha noticed something about these very blissful concentration states. He noticed that when the concentration went, the bliss also went. And so he noticed, he recognized in that, as blissful, as pleasurable, as enjoyable as these states were, he noticed that there was a quality of unsatisfactoriness in them. Because they couldn't stay. As hard as he tried to keep them, he couldn't he discovered that he couldn't. And how often do we see that for ourselves in the meditation? Maybe not to that deep a state of bliss, but we come to a state of peacefulness and calmness and we think, oh, I got it, this is it. Wonderful, I'm going to do a six-month retreat now. I'm going to stay for at least another month. And then the very next sitting, it's gone, oh, I've lost it. Oh, oh. And it changes. 
concentration is gone, the state is gone, the experience is gone. And the Buddha noticed this and said, you know, this, is, this isn't satisfactory. It's very temporary. And so he, he kind of abandoned the concentration and he went for the other major form of spiritual quest in, in India at that time and still very much at this time. And that is the, um, the path of, um, of ascetic practices, the path of asceticism. Um, the path of, it can be referred to as a path of renunciation, a path of simplicity. And renunciation and simplicity taken to an extreme. And the principle being that by, by getting rid of everything, by doing without anything, by renouncing everything, there's some kind of a purification that happens. And with that, a liberation will come. And so the Buddha renounced everything. He wore rough bark for clothing. If he wore clothing at all, he, um, he would do things like standing, doing standing meditation, standing teachers, not for half an hour or 45 minutes, but for days and days. He, he, um, he did extreme forms of fasting down to just eating one grain of rice a day. And, um, and he carried on with these practices for um, several years, we're told, these ascetic practices. And at some point, he came to realize that rather than bringing him liberation, these practices were bringing him weakness and ill health and suffering and pain. And he realized the unsatisfactoriness in this. And so the Buddha saw the unsatisfactoriness of the life of luxury, of having all the material pleasures. He saw the unsatisfactoriness of the other extreme, of the ascetic practices of doing without, of denial, of rejection. And he thought about this and he decided to go and sit under a tree in Bodhgaya and reflect on this. And um, and he went and he sat under the tree and he reflected and he came to some understanding. He came to a very profound understanding which for him was a liberation, a true liberation. A liberation from the unsatisfactoriness of life. He summed up his insights, he summed up his, his understanding, what he came to, to recognize under the tree over the course of one night in four statements. And he referred to it as the Four Noble Truths. And the first of these statements, the First Noble Truth, is very obvious one, but at the same time very profound. If you remember in the the first day when I was talking about mindfulness of the breath, I was talking, I, I mentioned how sometimes the most basic thing, the, the things that are the most basic, the most ordinary, the most simple, are very often the most profound. And, and I think this is true with this first noble truth. And the first noble truth is that in our lives we experience unsatisfactoriness. 
in our lives, we experience dissatisfaction, we experience suffering, we experience stress, we experience anguish. Very obvious statement. But when we really look at it, it's quite profound because if we, if we really look at that statement, we really look at that, not just look at the statement, but look at the fact of it in our lives. Look in our lives and, and, to, and to see where we do experience this, this unsatisfactoriness, this, this anguish, this stress, this suffering. And this word, the, the word for suffering, in, again in, in Pali, is dukkha, D-U-K-K-H-A. And it's usually translated as suffering, but it really has a much broader meaning than what we understand by suffering. And, and dukkha means suffering at the level of outright suffering, how we think of it. But it also means suffering in the sense of dissatisfaction at very subtle levels. Dissatisfaction with the way things are. Dissatisfaction with the way things are right in this moment. And if we, if we look in our lives at this first noble truth, the fact of dukkha in our lives, when we start to look closely, it does become very profound because we see at subtle levels there may be considerably more of it than we are normally aware of or than we would normally care to acknowledge. And that can seem pretty gloomy and dismal, but the, um, the, the positive side of it is hopefully that when we recognize this in our lives, it provides an impetus to want to do something about it. And certainly this was the case for the Buddha. He recognized the dissatisfaction in the life in the palace, and he decided to get up and do something about it, to look into it, to explore it. And to look into it and to explore it doesn't mean to move away from it, to avoid it doesn't mean even to try to get rid of it or to try to end it, but to look into it, to understand it. And the Buddha's, the Buddha's investigation, his, his looking into it, was um, with the intention, I would say, of trying to understand the underlying cause of it. When we look at our own sufferings, our own dukkha. And, 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 I, and I would say that for most of us, if not all of us, the reason that we've come to meditation is because we have recognized this first noble truth. We've recognized that in our lives there is something that's unsatisfactory for us. And meditation is seen as a tool which we certainly hope will provide some answers and even more hopefully, some resolution. And so in coming to meditation, I would say that most or possibly all of us already have some understanding and some recognition of the first noble truth. And so the Buddha was looking into dukkha, looking into suffering, to see if he could find the root cause of it. And very often when we, when we look at when we look at dukkha, when we look at suffering in our lives, and, and, and 
a natural tendency seems to be to look for the cause of it. And we can, we can understand, at least intellectually, that if we want to end it, if we can find the cause of it, then we can do something about it. When we, when we experience suffering in our lives, when we experience dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, when we start to look for causes, how often do we really look at our dukkha? How often do we really look at the suffering? And how often do we look somewhere else? We notice that when we start to look for a cause of something, so easily the tendency is to look out there. So a restless mind comes up. The cause is the person next to me. Angry mind comes. The cause is Brad up there making us go through holes in our feet. (laughs) 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 The mind states come, and so easily we look outside for the cause. And and of course these these outer these outer factors are factors. They are conditions in it. But. but I wonder if we can really say it's the cause. Certainly a factor, but if that were the cause, then why is it that I get angry when Brad's not even anywhere near me? I'll let you off. So we see, we can we can see that. The, the mind state or the emotion or the, the, the suffering, the, the unsatisfactoriness comes to us when we look for a cause and look out there and we can pinpoint something and, and we can pinpoint something and then we can try to do something about it or sometimes we can see very clearly that we can't do anything about it and then we get a feeling of hopelessness and helplessness and, and the, the suffering just gets worse and worse and worse. Or we look outside of us in in the form of looking to past experiences. We look to the past and we say, well, in the past I did this and it got rid of it. And we say, well, if I can just do that again. And we try it again and sometimes it seems to work and we say, oh great, I'll just keep doing that. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes we try it. You know, we, we on on retreat. Very very common experience. Um, person having having a pain somewhere in the body, and then we come to the third or fourth day of the retreat, and we do the body scan. And person comes and says, "Wow, that was great. Did the body scan? I went through it, and that pain just boom, just kind of dissolved away. It was so easy to rip it, and it's just you know, just no problem. And now, ha, ah, got it. Now when I when I get this pain, I just do the body scan." It'll go away. Wonderful. And then, of course, the next sitting comes along, the pain comes, and you do the body scan, and you get to the painful part, and move the attention through, and it just gets worse. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, so looking, looking to the past, and trying to kind of hold on to something, and, and fix it, and say, ah, this is it. And we can see it, 
doesn't doesn't work to look out there or to look back there. So we look to the future and say, well, in the future, if I just sit for another two months, then I'll get it. You know, if I can just if I just do one more retreat, and just projecting into the future how that's going to do it. And meanwhile, I'm still suffering. And so, so looking for the root cause is to look here and now. Look right here. Right here. Right here. Right now. I remember um, working in the garden on a retreat. And again, not an uncommon experience for people. Working in the garden... Um, digging up weeds, and, and and a number of people have told me the same experience, and and pulling the weeds, and and you kind of pull on the weed, and it snaps off, and you look, ah, weed's gone, good, and you go on to the next one, and you snap it off, and, <laughs> and and you spend your spend your hour weeding the garden, and you look at your little patch here, oh, no weed left, <laughs> wonderful, good, done a good job. And then come back out the next day to start, and you look, and these, these little shoots come <laughs> back up. And what's going on here? And then you realize, ah, oh, yeah, I have to get the roots out. And so we can we can we can find ways of apparently ending the dukkha. But then we look and we see, oh, come back. It's come back. What did I do wrong? Why can't I do it now? Because we haven't gotten to the root. And so the the second the second noble truth is the Buddha's take on the root. <laughs> the Buddha's take on the root is that the cause of suffering is in grasping. The cause of suffering, the cause of dukkha, is in grasping. And again, the grasping comes from within. So, so pointing out that, that the dukkha isn't in the object, it's not out there. It's in the grasping. The object is just the object. And the grasping, the, the holding, the trying to keep. And we can we can see that when we try to keep something, when we try to hold on to that body scan as a way of getting rid of the pain. When we try to hold on to the blissful state, or at least the pleasant state that we get sometimes in the meditation, we try to hold on to it. At the end of the retreat, not at all uncommon at the end of a retreat for someone to say, well, if I can just take this with me back into my daily life, then everything will be wonderful. And next retreat comes along and the person's right back there saying, well, it's okay for a day or two or maybe a week, month, but uh, here I am back again. Wasn't able to hold on to it tight enough. <laughs> The cause of suffering is in the grasping, the trying to hold on, trying to hold on to things. And this causes suffering for many reasons. 
um, a main one being because, as I spoke about the other night, things are impermanent. Things change. We try to hold on to our experiences, but our experiences change. And why do they change? Because they come out of conditions. Here on the retreat, conditions are very different than conditions in our life at work and with our families. How can, how can we, how can there be any logic at all in even thinking the possibility of having the same state of mind or the same kind of experience in that situation that we have in this situation? Of course, sometimes it happens. Sometimes in life outside of retreat, we do have very pleasant, very blissful experiences. And it kind of reinforces the idea, oh yeah, it should be possible all the time. But it comes out of conditions. The conditions change, the state changes. And so there's, there's trying to keep things as they are, when in fact they're changing. It causes a lot of conflict. It causes dukkha. And the other side of this, this holding, this trying to keep, is the trying to get rid of trying to get rid of that which is present. Something that we don't like, we don't want. And we try to, and we struggle to get rid of it, to push it away. And so often we see very clearly that the, the harder we struggle with it, the harder we push, the harder we fight with it, the more it seems to come, the stronger it comes. Or we can apparently get rid of it for a short time, and then comes back and we're faced with it again. And so recognizing uh, the, the grasping and the pushing away really does cause us suffering, dukkha. And, and important, important to understand that in, in the teachings the definition of grasping and of suffering are very much interconnected. Very much interconnected. And, and it, it, the teachings say that grasping gives rise to suffering. And suffering is the result of grasping. And so the, the definitions are very much interconnected. And so if there's no grasping, there's no suffering. If there's no suffering, there's no grasping. And so... Um, Sometimes people come up with these very theoretical situations and say, well, you know, this is suffering or this isn't suffering. And, and, um, and, and if we look at it, when we look at it, I'm trying to think of a specific example now, can't catch one, can't hold on to it. <laughs> uh, but if we look, we can see whether or not there's grasping. And if there isn't grasping, then there isn't suffering. Um, so, an okay, an, an example, um, pain. A pain comes up, a painful sensation, an unpleasant sensation comes up in the knee. And the thought is, oh, this is suffering. This is suffering. But if we look closely, we see that the sensation, the sensation itself isn't suffering. The sensation is just the sensation. 
The suffering is when we want to get rid of it. And we can see that. Um, and again, it shows very often in the, in the body scan, we can see that when we bring the attention to the pain, when we're able to bring it in a way that there is openness and spaciousness, and there isn't this struggle with it, this wanting to get rid of it, or wanting it to change, when we can just come to it with openness, the unpleasant sensation can be there, and it's no problem. It's no big deal. We can feel it, we can explore it, we can allow it. But when we come to it with, oh, this is terrible pain, I can't get rid of this, I can't meditate with this. That's the suffering. That's the dukkha. That wanting things to be different than they are. So the second truth is this cause of suffering. And the third noble truth is the good news. <laughs> and the good news is the ending of it. In recognizing suffering, in, in, in really understanding it, and understanding and knowing deeply the cause of it, is the ending of it. When we, when we recognize very deeply that the, the grasping is giving rise to the suffering, we can do something about that. To release. To let go. And in that moment of releasing, of letting go, the suffering comes to an end. The dukkha comes to an end. And this is the third noble truth. And of course it's easy to say that, but then the mind comes in and says, oh, but how do I do it? How do I do that? How do I let go? And, and so the Buddha gave the fourth noble truth. The fourth noble truth is the path. The path is pointing to how, how do I let go? What gives support to letting go? What brings the understanding? What can contribute to the, the understanding, the insight, the Dhamma? the understanding of the Dhamma. What can support the understanding of the Dhamma, of the teachings, of things, of the nature of things, such that this letting go will happen? And the ending of Dukkha will be known here and now. The fourth noble truth the Buddha referred to as the Eightfold Path. And... um, Hmm. Time is moving on. So the the eightfold path. So eight eight aspects of the path, and and the Buddha also referred to the eightfold path as the middle path. And very very interesting when we think back to his his original practice and his pre awakening, pre enlightenment, pre liberation days, where he saw the the suffering in the extreme. And the Buddha said, ah, the answer lies in the middle path. And he defined the middle path as the path which avoids extremes. A path of life which doesn't get caught in the extremes. And we can see so often in our lives where we get caught in extremes. 
maybe not extremes of wealth and luxury and extremes of poverty and renunciation, but maybe an extreme of, should I do this or should I do that? And we get caught in going back and forth between it. And just don't see any way out of it. And there's dukkha in that. Get caught, oh, should I sit right now or should I do some walking meditation? Oh, maybe I should do some qigong. (laughs) And get caught in it. And we don't see a way out. This is getting caught in we could say extremes in opposites, in polarities, in dualities. <coughs> and so the Eightfold Path is the middle path. And so the, so a little bit quickly now, the, the first, the, the, the Eightfold Path includes eight things. First one is understanding. The path begins with understanding. And understanding means understanding the Four Noble Truths. And so if you've got to the path, you already recognize that there's suffering, you already know that it has a cause, and presumably you know that there can be an end to it, otherwise there couldn't be a path. <laughs> so the understanding is already there. So the path begins with understanding. And then there's intention. When we understand the nature of things, when we understand the Four Noble Truths, when we understand the nature of of life, of who we are, the natural response is an intention for living life in a way that's free of suffering. An intention to live in a way that there's an absence of, of ill will, of hatred, of cruelty, of greed. All these elements that give rise to suffering. So intention, part of the path, and to be looked at. And then there's speech. Speech as a part of the path. Giving attention to our speech and seeing how speech becomes a factor in suffering. And how speech can be a factor in the ending of suffering as well. Giving attention to what we say, how we say it, who we say it to, when we say it, why we say it. Actions, our actions, giving attention to our actions and seeing how our actions are a role in in suffering for ourselves and for others. And how our actions can bring an end to suffering as well. Livelihood, giving attention to our livelihood and finding livelihood and exploring livelihood to, to bring it in line with the understanding and the intention. Finally, we come to mindfulness. No, we don't. Next, we come to effort. <laughs> effort. Effort. We think of meditation as being an effortless thing. We just sit here and just be mindful. Quite passive. But effort is part of the path. The effort to understand, and the effort to bring to an end our dukkha. So I've, I've spoken how, about the, the two fundamental features or qualities of the meditation practice, being the mindfulness and this quality of investigation, 
of taking interest in life. This is the effort to generate and to cultivate this interest and this sense of inquiry, this sense of investigation, to really look deeply into life, to really come to profound understanding that can liberate us. Effort. Then we come to mindfulness. Finally, boy, number six out of seven, seven out of eight. Number seven, finally mindfulness. We give so much attention to mindfulness on the retreat. And mindfulness, number seven out of eight, but we can see how mindfulness is really a necessary element for all of these. Without mindfulness, how can we give attention to our intentions? How can we give attention to our livelihood? How can we give attention to our speech, to our actions? Mindfulness, so important as a foundation, as a basis for all of this. And the last one, number eight out of eight, concentration. And so often in the meditation we put concentration number one. So we think, oh, I've got to get concentrated first. But the Buddha put concentration number eight. And it, it's kind of like when, when all these other things are looked at, we look at all these other factors and we, we um, kind of um, cultivate a lifestyle cultivate a way of living that there really is a joy in life and a peacefulness in life and a steadiness in life and then the concentration comes very naturally not through force, <coughs> struggle and through effort but very naturally when we take an interest in something when we're really interested in something very easily and effortlessly the attention gets concentrated on it to take interest in our life, to take interest in the breath, to take interest in each footstep, to take interest in the, the chi ball, to take interest in a way that the energy comes, and the understanding can come. So perhaps taking a little bit of time to reflect on the Eightfold Path and to reflect on our own practice in these days here together. Tomorrow, one more full day. And to see how, how are these factors of the Eightfold Path showing in my practice? How are the Four Noble Truths showing in my practice? And really seeing what is my intention? What am I here for? Am I here for a temporary relief through pleasant experience and hope to take that home with me and keep it forever? Or is there something more important than that? Let's sit quietly together for a couple of minutes. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.